you that we can say all is ours because we are heirs in the kingdom. But we can also say with humility, it's nothing that we have done to make this so. Yet it's all that you have done. So thank you for your sacrifice and your love for us. Father, now as we come to your word, we know that there is nothing that we can say from this stage that is helpful, that is apart from your word. And so I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word, that we would respond with faith and obedience. And Father, I I ultimately pray that the gospel would be abundantly clear, that it would go forth from this place and all across our city to see lives transformed for your sake. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. If you have a copy of God's word, I wanna invite you to turn with me to the book of John. We'll be in John chapter 13 this morning. Uh, When you came in, you should have received a liturgy guide, and inside that guide, there are a couple places for you to take notes. Uh, There's a guided notes page, and then there's also a blank blank page for you to take notes as well. Uh, Last week, we introed our Lent series uh, by looking at the theme of repentance. We're, We're looking at six different kingdom principles as we as we make our way as we make this march toward uh easter where we will celebrate the resurrection and you know mitch was joking earlier he was like i'm i'm really not great at lent you know and it's probably because we're baptist and and we just don't take it all that seriously but you know the songs this morning we're we're praising jesus for his victory over death and it's like no 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 mitch that's that's six weeks away we only celebrate the resurrection on easter um so uh we, we have been kind of joking about that because we're trying to we're trying to craft this balance you know we live in light of the resurrection every single week and it is our only hope and that is why we come and have reason to sing and that is why we proclaim the gospel with joy because Jesus actually did die and he actually did rise from the dead so that is that is our hope and it is a reality for us every single week however in this season uh, we do want to focus on not necessarily Jesus's glory, although we will focus on that, but to help us look at Jesus's life and death. Because in his life and death, we see a Jesus who is humbled. We see a Jesus who is completely humbled. It's what theologians call, and I said last week, his state of humiliation, where he is enduring the effects of the fall where, where he suffers, where he thirsts, where he is hungry, where he takes on human form. And while the entire series is really focused on that, uh, today in particular, as we look at the theme of humility, um, we're going to see Jesus' uh, condescension on, on full display. So John 13, 
verses 1 through 17 is going to be the passage this morning. Just so you're aware of where we're going. Last week we talked about repentance. This week we're talking about humility. Um, And then the following themes are service, self-denial, suffering, and sacrifice, which will take us all the way up until Good Friday. And then by, uh, by that next Sunday, obviously, we will be glorying in the resurrection. As we begin this morning, though, I, I did want to ask you a question. It's not a trick question, so, so don't worry. But in your opinion, is there any sin you believe to be worse than any other sin? Okay, you don't have to don't answer it out loud. Please don't answer it out loud. I don't want to deal with that this morning. <laughs> I was like, yes! And then you say it. Um, but is there any sin you believe to be worse than any other sin? And if so, which sin is the worst? Um, I, think, I think we tend to fall in, in two, two errors. Either we, we mistakenly think that all sin is the same. You know, there is no sin that's any worse than any other sin. And that's just not true. It is true that both a child hitting his brother and, and, a, and a, a man murdering another man both comes from the heart and both comes from a place of anger, we cannot say with any integrity or intelligence that murder is the same as a kid hitting his brother. It's not the same, okay? Like, murder's worse. It's worse. So, so there is degree when it comes to sin. Uh, however, we, we, we may tend to fall in this, this other camp where we emphasize certain sins over and against other sins and where certain sins almost become a hobby horse for us. And whenever we talk about sin, we, we may talk about greed and think, yeah, it's not good to be greedy or, you know, it's not, it's not good to, to be uh, gluttonous. But, you know, these other sins, they're obviously far worse. And so we emphasize them to an unhealthy and probably unnecessary degree. But and I'm drawing from C.S. Lewis here, we probably don't hold the sin that is probably actually the worst in that light. I've actually never heard it. Whenever I hear of people who, who emphasize certain sins over other sins, I never hear them mention this specific sin. There are a list of, of other sins that they will list off, whether it's sexual immorality or greed or uh, abuse of power or whatever it is. They never... They never mention the one that actually might qualify as what C.S. Lewis calls in his book, Mere Christianity, the great sin. And that would be the sin of pride. See, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, he, he says that the essential human vice, the essential human vice, so of all the human vices, there is one that is essential that the others kind of draw life from. And it is pride. Pride is the essential human vice. And then he, he says on the, on the other side of it, the essential Christian virtue from which all other Christian virtues kind of draw life is the virtue of humility. So according to Lewis, and I think he's right here, I think scripture attests to this, pride is the center of sin. Pride is the center of sin. And humility is the center of holiness. Humility is the center of love. Humility is the center of grace and mercy. Humility is even the center of repentance, as we talked a little bit last week. Um, So before we jump into John 13, I want us to look at these two 
centers, the center of vice, the center of virtue, pride and humility in Scripture to, to see what the Scriptures say about this. Um, I think there are, at least, there are so many things we can say about pride, but I just want to emphasize three things at first. So, um, first, pride is dangerous. Pr- pride is dangerous. And pride is dangerous because it provokes God. Uh, one writer said that uh, while, while all sins are, while most sins are turning away from God, pride is that specific sin where you're turning your attack toward God. He says that pride is what led Satan um, to depart from God. He did not like the hierarchy of power and he wanted to be in the place of God. That's pride. The same thing affected Adam and Eve and the same thing affects all of us. But pride is dangerous, not necessarily because of what it does to us. That's, that's what makes it dangerous enough. But pride is dangerous because it provokes the wrath of God. God hates pride. He hates it. And God opposes the proud. Um, I have a number of examples. I'm actually going to email this out to you because it was so many. I didn't want to didn't do a full notes page, so there's so many of these I, I do want to get to you. Uh, but just one example from Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13, 11 says, I will punish, this is the Lord, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant. Pride is dangerous because you are going toe-to-toe with someone you cannot defeat it provokes the wrath of god pride is dangerous but pride is also destructive so not only is pride just eternally dangerous temporally dangerous pride is destructive and as we've said pride is the fountain of other sins pride destroys us from the inside out pride is so destructive in fact that you could actually be doing the forms of virtue Okay? You, could be, you could serve from a proud heart, and even though you're serving someone else, for example, if you take a meal to someone and they're not as grateful as you hoped they were, and then you leave grumbling, your pride has essentially canceled out your service. That's not true Christian service. Pride destroys even the best efforts from God's people to, to follow him. Proverbs 16, 18, as we well know, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Uh, I have a, have a friend in town, a guy I've been uh, sharing the gospel with for a while now. Um, he, he, had, he had a DUI a couple, couple months ago, and uh, uh, th- then he had another one, <laughs> so he's, he's got himself into some real trouble, but uh, we, we had a mutual friend who's actually a prosecutor here in town, and uh, he was just talking to him one day, and he was like, look, you're a kid, you're a kid, and you were messing your life up, but I'm going to help you, and he's like, here's all you got to do, all you got to do, get dressed, show up to court on this day, just show up to court, I'll take care of it, and that dude did not want to go to court and he didn't show up he didn't show up and I'll never forget when that prosecutor he came back in uh, you know we, we were together one day and he was just like he was like what a prideful I'm not going to say what he actually said okay <laughs> it's not appropriate here um, but he said what a, what a prideful jerk he was like I'm never going to help him again this kid who's already messed up has destroyed himself 
His pride has destroyed him, at least in the short run here. So pride takes hold of us from the inside out and it destroys areas of our life, not only our relationship with God, our relationship with others. It infects our lives from the inside out. It it affects all the bad things we do. It feeds all the vices. It destroys all of the virtues that that we may try to, to do. So pride is destructive. It's dangerous, it's destructive, but it's also deceptive. Pride is deceptive. Um, And this is is where it's particularly dangerous. You can actually portray a perception of holiness while lacking humility. And it would just be a perception of holiness. You can appear to be holy. And it will only be an appearance of holiness if your holiness is not fueled by humility. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he puts it this way. Many a man has overcome cowardice, or lust, or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity. That is by pride. And he was talking earlier about how he would say Christian teachers, um, they tickle a man's pride to try to keep him from uh, falling into certain vices. Like, you, you should not have such a temper. That is beneath you. That, you're too good for this. And so you puff the man up in thinking that he can put down this vice, and he may do it. He may do it. So Lewis says, many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity. I'm too good for those things, so I'm not going to do it. And then Lewis says this, the devil laughs. The devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. If he can make you proud of being a better father or husband or wife or mother or student than someone else, he's glad to see you succeed. He's glad to see you make others' lives better as long as it is fueling pride in your heart because in the end, he will win, he being Satan. Because pride in the end will destroy you. Even if on the outside, you look like you have everything together. So pride is dangerous, pride is destructive, and pride is deceptive. Okay, what about humility? So, so the Bible is very clear about pride. Um, from beginning to end, God opposes the proud. He strikes them down. If you read through Chronicles or Kings, you'll see it over and over and over again. The kings that humbled themselves were saved. And the kings that that stood in their pride and they stood in their pride, they were destroyed. And anyone who turned from uh, their proud heart to a humble heart, it says that the wrath of God was abated from them. So, you know, I would encourage you to read through that so you can see. But so pride, it is very clear, is something that God opposes and it invokes his wrath. Humility, though, is not just something that God recommends to us. It would be good if you would be humble. It would be helpful to you. No, humility in the scriptures, it is spoken of as necessary. Humility is absolutely necessary for anyone to live as God originally intended us to live. Humility is absolutely necessary for us to have a relationship with God. Humility is absolutely necessary for the church to do what the church has been called to do. 
So before, just a brief word on humility. Um, looked up tons of definitions. People define humility in so many different ways. It's one of those things, it's kind of like leadership. It's, it's kind of hard to define um, per se, but when you see it, you see it. Like you know it. Like you, whenever you see a good leader, you, you just know that person's a good leader, even if you're not able to fully define it. Whenever you see a person who is humble, you, you notice it. And, it. and people have defined it in all kinds of different ways, and we'll get into that. But just basically, humility is the renunciation of rights for the good of others. That's one way we can look at it. Humility is the renunciation of rights for the good of others. And we see that most clearly in Jesus, how he renounces his own rights always, always, always for the sake and for the good of others. And so humility then involves an accurate evaluation of who you are, an accurate self-evaluation and a consistent life in light of God and others. So humility then is living consistently with an accurate, or living consistent with an accurate evaluation of yourself in light of God and others. So it's, you see yourself as you actually are. That was the problem with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They did not see themselves as they actually were. They believed the lies of Satan, and so then they wanted to take the place of God. And so you have to accurately evaluate yourself to see who you truly are before God and before others. If you are a proud person, you will be trampling on other people because you see yourself as better than them. That is not an accurate evaluation of who you are. If you are proud against, over and against God, then you are not accurately evaluating yourself in light of his awesome might and glory. So that's what humility involves. Therefore, pride is a trick of self-exaltation. Pride tricks us to exalt ourselves. And so then, just finally, just a final word here on just a definition for humility. Humility requires at least three things. Self-awareness, self-honesty, and self-forgetfulness. And before I move on any further, if you have not read Tim Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, you have to get it. It's like 30 pages. It's, it's incredibly short, and it's all on this theme of pride and humility. He takes it from 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. It is phenomenal. Um, the Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by, by Tim Keller. Um, but humility requires you to be self-aware. A humble person will also be honest with themselves, and then a humble person will be self-forgetful. They are so focused on the needs of others. They are so focused on the good of others. They are so focused, they are so caught up in the glory of God. They are so caught up in how they can love and give themselves for the sake of others in the church and outside of the church that they essentially forget about themselves. You become so, you're not concerned about your reputation anymore because you're not thinking about yourself anymore. So that's, that's humility. Um, just as a few, few quick words on that. Now, in the scriptures, humility is spoken of as being absolutely necessary for at least three things. First, humility is necessary for blessing. Um, over and over again in the scriptures, a few examples, Matthew 18, 4, Luke 14, 11, James 4, 10, Proverbs 22, 4, God blesses the humble. He does not bless the proud. He opposes the proud. He blesses the humble. That's, that's the pattern. Um, Matthew 18, 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's the one who brings himself low that will one day be exalted. 
It is that person who is blessed by God. Secondly, humility is necessary for growth in the kingdom. So not only does God bless the humble, God leads the humble. Psalm 25.9 is an example. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. God does not lead the proud. Do you know why? If you're proud, you won't follow. You won't follow. God only leads the humble. And so growth in the kingdom. If you're not growing as a Christian, if you have a close friend who, who speaks with you and they're like, I haven't seen any growth in X, Y, and Z areas in your life. You need to examine not how often you're reading the Bible, how often you're praying. You need to examine your own heart to see if pride has kept in and made a stronghold in your heart because the proud will not grow. Pride stifles life and gives a cheap imitation of it. So humility is necessary for blessing. Humility is necessary for growth in the kingdom. And humility is necessary for salvation. It's necessary. If you are not humble, you will not be saved. Now, again, this is not works-based salvation. This is not God waiting on you to be humble so then he can respond to you. This is just the way it works. Um, God saves the humble. 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-eight. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Psalm 149, 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Why? Because only the humble will turn away from them, their sins. It takes humility to renounce yourself. Again, that would be an accurate evaluation of who you are in light of who God is. I am a sinner in need of his grace. I am a sinner, he is a holy God, and I am separated from him. That takes humility to admit that and live a life that's consistent with that thought. And so, if you are stuck in your pride You will not be saved because you will not turn from your sin and you will not trust in Jesus. Humility is necessary for salvation. Two verses in the New Testament that that perfectly sum this up, James 4, 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That is the Bible's teaching on pride and humility. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, we looked at this a few months ago. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So those who exalt themselves now will one day be humbled by God's wrath, and those who humble themselves now will one day be exalted as heirs in the kingdom of God, sharing in the glory achieved by the Son of God. That's, that's how this works. So I hope you've seen just very clearly how dangerous and deadly pride is. And so we must do everything we can to run away from it. And how life-giving and necessary humility is to even be who we are called to be and do what we are called to do in the life of the church. So a couple questions then. How could we possibly kill or subdue pride and pursue humility how could we possibly live the humble life god calls us to in christ because honestly i don't even want to preach on this topic i mean i should because i'm obviously the most humble person in this room you know you get that um i don't even want to preach on this topic how many of us can claim like you know hey what's what's something that's defined you this well i'm a really humble person I just noticed that about myself. I'm really humble. The moment you say that, you're showing you're not humble. You know? 
Like humility is not something we like to talk about. It's not something that I want to preach on, but it's absolutely necessary. And it's a little defeating because I see so much pride in my own heart. It's so defeating to think about how much God opposes it and how necessary humility is. What could we do? I can't give you a five-step plan to be a more humble person this week. I can't do it. It'd be great if it was that easy. It's not how it works. Here's what I can do. I can point you to Jesus. And that's what we have to do. We have to look at Jesus' example of humility and his command to be humble. So in John 13, we see just that. We see this beautiful display of humility. John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word. Um, So, there's at least three things I want to emphasize from this passage, and really there, it, it breaks down into three different categories. You have verse 3, verse 3, which we're going to come to actually at the very end of the sermon, and then from there you have verses 4 through 11, which detail the, the foot washing experience itself, and then you have verses 12 through 17, which is Jesus' explanation of that, and we're going to walk through that uh, point by point. Um, so in Jesus' act of washing the disciples' feet, just from the very beginning, there, there are some traditions who would hold foot washing up as uh, on par with baptism and the Lord's Supper as sacraments to be observed by the church because Jesus commands them to do this. Um, however, uh, Jesus is pretty clear in this passage that what he's doing is essentially, he's doing two things here. First, he is predicting the sacrificial death by which he will die to serve us as a ransom, okay? So he's first predicting his sacrificial death, and then secondly, he is prescribing not a specific act to do, but he's prescribing a way of life for us. This is how you should live among one another. 
You should do as I have done for you. And what has Jesus done for us? He has served us sacrificially. And what we're going to emphasize here, we can emphasize the sacrifice of Jesus, the service of Jesus. We can emphasize the love of Jesus. We are only going to be looking at one aspect here, the humility of Jesus. And so humility then does two things, and then I'll get to the third point at the very end. So first, humility follows Jesus' example. Humility follows Jesus' example. So you notice... um, Jesus does something here that, that no one did, okay? So in this, in this culture, the only people who washed the feet of guests in a house would have been Gentile slaves or Gentile servants. Even Jewish servants thought it was beneath them. And, and their owners, they thought it was, or, you know, the heads of the households, they thought it was beneath even a Jewish servant to wash the feet of travelers as they came in. So they wouldn't even do it. It was only reserved for Gentile Um, slaves or Gentile servants. And then here you have Jesus. Now, the disciples didn't have a full comprehension of of who Jesus was, okay? They they didn't fully understand that he was actually God himself, all right? They didn't have a full concept of that. They, They didn't even have a really full concept on what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. However, they knew that he was a remarkable teacher, and they they saw him as not just a teacher, but as their Lord, someone who was leading them. They, they had some sense of the fact that he had come to do something that no prophet before had come to do. And so obviously they greatly revered him. And so when Jesus, you got to imagine the scene, they're sitting in like a U-shape, Jesus at the center, Jesus standing up, taking the form of a servant. No one did this in that culture, especially rabbis especially prominent leaders and teachers, anyone with authority, you would not take the form of a servant because you're not a servant. And yet, here's what we see from Jesus. Though a king, though God himself, Jesus takes the form of a servant. In verse four, it says, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Okay, so what you see from Jesus here, he is literally taking the form of a servant. He's taking a towel and wrapping it around his waist. He, he would have looked exactly like Jewish servants in that day. And Jesus is painting a picture for us here. And something that the disciples probably didn't recognize at that time Jesus isn't just a prominent man who takes the form of a lower class man in this room. In fact, Jesus is the eternal God of heaven and earth, the agency of creation itself. And he has taken the form of a man. God himself has become man. I hope you saved your place. Turn back to Philippians 2. Paul expounds upon this as he's encouraging the church at Philippi to not care so much about their reputation, but instead to be humble. He's like, if you're going to be humble, you have to look to the one who is more humble than anybody, Jesus. In verse 4, let each of you look not, to his, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. As we've said, Jesus, even, even taking a human body upon himself. So some have misunderstood this passage to, to mean that when God the Son, the eternal um, um, Son of God took the form when he emptied himself that he somehow lost his divinity. He lost his deity. And that, that is not what this passage is saying. It's saying the form in which he takes is, is different. It has changed. There's a change of forms where he is eternal spirit. Now he takes on this flesh and blood body. Even the fact that Jesus, the eternal son of God, takes a human body upon himself that itself is a condescension. That itself is a sign of humility where he is coming down and sharing in our flesh. He is taking the form of a servant. But why is he doing that? Why does Jesus take on a human body? Why does he live in a world that's broken with sin? He didn't deserve any of that. He could have come in any form whatsoever that is, that is more fitting to him. Notice, he, whenever he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's in a different form there that's much more glorious. And yet, that's not how he comes to us. He comes to us in our form. Why? Because, though deserving of being served, though, though deserving of worship and praise and and admiration from his followers, Jesus performs the role of a servant. So in this passage, we see it in verse five, he put water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, can you imagine this? This guy who's been performing all of these miracles, demonstrating all of this divine power, and you've been following him around for a few years, and, and you can tell things are ramping up. And you know something big is about to happen. And you're starting to be convinced. Imagine just conversations they're having. Man, I mean, who, what does it mean for this guy to be the Messiah? Because he's doing things that only God can do. And just you revere for this guy. And then you see him on his hands and knees washing the feet of the people who don't even understand why he's there. Cleaning their feet. I mean, I mean, come on. Like, it would, be, it would be disgusting enough to clean, like, my feet after walking around with shoes all day. But can you imagine in this culture what that would have been like, walking around dusty streets, animals everywhere? And here you have Jesus, who we know as the Son of God, the creator of every single person in the room that he's in, on his hands and knees, washing their feet, He's doing this because that's what Jesus came to do. He came not to be served, he came to serve. And so back in Philippians 2, in Philippians 2, Paul says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so not only was he born in the likeness of men, not only is he now in this human form, which is a sign of his humility in and of itself, but then it says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself even further, even further by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So as Jesus is serving his disciples, 
And he tells them, you're not going to understand what I'm doing until later. They're not going to understand that what he's doing is pointing toward the way he would serve them as he suffered in their place and died on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, was too good for that. Objectively. Objectively. He was too good to die a sinner's death because he wasn't a sinner. And yet he did it. He renounced his rights for the good of others. He counted others more significant than himself. You remember at his trial? What does he say in response to all of these false accusations? What's he say? Nothing. Right? That challenges me every single time anyone makes a false accusation against me. I want to run to the defense. I want to defend my honor. And here's Jesus, and he's not trying to vindicate himself. He sits in silence. And these are false accusations. It was a total miscarriage of justice. They they were breaking their own rules with all of these trials. And yet Jesus stood silent. The humility of Christ. He thought of others more than he thought of himself. He made no prerequisites for those he served. You notice that? Like, I think John's really intentional when he's talking about the, the betrayal from Judas here. It's unnecessary for the story to, to emphasize that Judas was going to betray him. He's trying to make a point. John's saying, okay, yeah, so just so you know, I'm not going to list all of their names, but here's one name you need to remember. As Jesus is going around and washing these feet, one of the person, one of the people that he is serving, one of the people that he is washing the feet of is the guy who's going to betray him very soon. He makes no prerequisites for those he served. He emptied himself for the good of others, and he served both his friends and his enemies. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that he's washing Judas's feet. Like, I can imagine myself, like, even if the Lord wanted me to do it, I would sit there and do it with such a frustrated heart. Like, you know, sitting there, like, getting the water and washing his feet, just looking at him, you know, looking at the guy, just angry, knowing what he's about to do. How could you? How could you? How could you? And yet Jesus, the one who would actually have the righteous right to do that, he fully humbles himself and gets down on his hands and knees and washes the feet of the one who would lead him to his death. Jesus serves you and I in the same way when he goes to the cross. We are just as unworthy as Judas. We are completely unworthy to receive God's love and to receive his grace and the reconciliation that Jesus' cross provides. We have stood in opposition to him and yet as his enemies, he serves us humbly anyway by taking on the punishment that we deserve. Mark Jones says, there has never been a greater humiliation of a person than that of Jesus. No one has ever descended so low because no one has ever come from so high. So humility then follows Jesus' example. If you want to be a more humble person, you need to look to Jesus. There is no clearer example of humility in the history of the world. Jesus, in his humility, went to the cross to crush your pride. And the way that we pursue humility and put pride to death is by looking at one who fully renounced his rights for the sake of others. So humility follows Jesus' example. Secondly, though, 
Humility is required of Jesus' followers. We see this theme again. We emphasize it at the beginning of the sermon, but we see it again here. Humility is not an option for us. Humility is required of Jesus' followers. Um, uh, One of my favorite writers, D.A. Carson, he says, One of the ways human pride manifests itself in a stratified society is in refusing to take the lower role. That's it. Like, we we don't want to take the lower role in, in our world and in our society. But now that Jesus, so now that Jesus, their Lord and teacher, has washed his disciples' feet, an unthinkable act, there is every reason why they also should wash one another's feet and no conceivable reason for refusing to do so. You see, Jesus has kind of rigged it for us. If Jesus is willing to serve us in this way, how could we refuse How could we possibly refuse to humble ourselves, to go lower, to build someone else up? How could we possibly exalt ourselves over and against someone else when the one who actually deserved that exaltation humbled himself beneath us? Let's look at the passage, this interaction with with, uh, Peter. He says, uh, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus says, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter's just so frustrated by it. You shall never wash my feet. And then Jesus is like, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me, which, which shows us that this, this is pointing to what Jesus is going to do on the cross. He's saying essentially, if I don't come to serve you, If I continue to exalt myself and don't humble myself to serve you, you cannot have any share with me. That song we sang where all is ours because of what Christ has done would not be true if Christ had only stayed in his state of exaltation, which he had every right to do. Because he humbled himself and came to serve us, we have share with him. And then down to verse 12, when when he starts to explain it. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, now, lesson time, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Serve others, humble yourself before others the way I have done for you, is what Jesus is saying. Gerald Bray, a theologian, he says, humility is the hallmark of the true believer. How can it be otherwise? When we are saved by grace, not by our own merits, And when we know that the mercy of God shines brightest in those who have been the greatest sinners, to be great in the kingdom of heaven is not a call to use our natural gifts, but to understand that the highest place in heaven belongs to those who have been forgiven much and who know just how undeserving they are. A proper sense of humility in the presence of God is essential. He's capturing the Bible's teaching on humility very well. And so we see at least three things here from this passage. We can't come to Jesus at all if we're proud. I emphasized that a little bit earlier. God saves the humble. He, he blesses the humble. He opposes the proud. We can't share in what Jesus has done if we remain committed to our pride. We can't do it. 
We can't. We have to humble ourselves in the way that Jesus has done. We can't come to him. We will never turn from our sins and trust in Jesus as long as we cling to our pride. And so I, that's, that's a prayer I have for myself, for my family, for my friends, especially my lost friends, that God would break their pride and humble themselves. And it's a frightening thing to pray for the Lord to humble you. It's frightening because he will. And it will be humbling. And by nature, we won't like it, but it is so necessary for us to come to Jesus in the first place, but secondly, for us to grow in the faith. We can't grow. We can't grow if we're proud. And then finally, we can't fulfill our calling to love and serve one another if we are proud. That's what Jesus is saying here. You should do this too. And then Carson's like, just fleshing that out. Not only should we do it, how could we not do it? How could we not humble ourselves if our great king and Lord and God has humbled himself? We have to do it. And then when you flesh it out even more, you start to realize, just like Lewis did, that humility is the epicenter of all Christian virtue. You will not repent and ask someone to forgive you unless you're humble. You, you will not sacrificially love others if you're clinging to your pride. Humility is absolutely necessary for us to fulfill the calling that God has given us as his church. You're really going to sacrifice time and meetings and conversations to reach this city with the gospel if you're proud? You won't do it. You won't do it. We must humble ourselves if we're going to do what God has called us to do. And then, as I said earlier, the scariest part of all of this is that we can look religious, we can feel spiritual, we can know scripture, we can believe sound doctrine, and we can miss Jesus. We can. We can look really religious on the outside. We can even feel very spiritual on the inside. We can believe sound doctrine that is right on par with scripture and miss Jesus and we will miss Jesus without humility. I mean, shouldn't that, shouldn't that be a priority in our church then? It is important for us to know scripture. I want you to know scripture. It is important for us to, to believe sound doctrine. I want that more than anything in the world. But we can accomplish both of those things and completely miss the mission and identity of Jesus. We can be lost and believe sound doctrine. It's frightening. It's frightening, but it's true. Because if you are believing sound doctrine for the purpose of puffing yourself up, you're missing the heart of the gospel, which is that the only one who deserved to be exalted humbled himself to lift us up. And self-exaltation ends in destruction. Those who exalt themselves now will be humbled later. Those who humble themselves now will be exalted later. And so, as we've said, it's humility that drives holiness humility that drives holiness. I love the way Mark Jones says it. He says, pride feeds off nearly anything. A fair measure of ability and wisdom, a single compliment, a season of remarkable prosperity, a call to serve God in a position of prestige, even the honor of suffering for the truth. Pride feeds off nearly anything. Pride is a scavenger. It isn't picky and it will feed off nearly anything. As such, it is nearly impossible to starve. Pride will always be there lurking around the corner. Your life group is going really well. Pride will feed off of that. We're seeing the Lord work and move in our church. 
Pride will feed off of that. We have to be self-aware, we have to be self-honest, and we have to be self-forgetful in all of this because our only boast should be in Christ and his cross, not in our own abilities, our own successes. Even if it's the Lord who's working in it, our boast should only be in him and our mission should be focused on others and not ourselves. All right, so two things so far in this passage. Humility follows Jesus' example. Humility is required of Jesus' followers. Now, a question. What then is the key to humility? What is the anchor that holds us to humility? What keeps us there? How was Jesus able to do this? I think he gives us a really interesting clue in verse four. Uh, Sorry, verse three. In verse 3, Jesus gives us an interesting clue into the key to humility. And I think this is something that can actually hold us to the fire of God's humbling grace. Verse 3, notice what it says. It's the way the sentence flows even. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, then you have verse 4. Out of the overflow of that knowledge, Jesus humbled himself and served his disciples. So let's read it again. Jesus, knowing, knowing what? Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. We see two things in that verse. We see the identity of Jesus and we see the mission of Jesus. So third and final truth here, humility is rooted in Jesus's identity and mission. So humility follows Jesus's example first. Um, Humility uh, is required of Jesus's followers. And then thirdly, humility is rooted in Jesus's identity and mission. All right, so first, Jesus' humility is rooted in his identity. In order for us to live humble lives, we must remember who we are in Jesus. Listen to what he says. Jesus said, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God. So Jesus is affirming his deity here, his identity as the Son of God who possesses all things. So knowing that he is God himself, knowing that all things fall under his lordship, then he is free and empowered to humble himself and serve others. That pattern is true for us. Here's how you can be free from caring about your reputation when it comes to serving others, denying yourself, sacrificing for others knowing who you are in Christ. Being confident in your identity in Christ frees you up to bring yourself low to serve others. I'm too good for that. I'm too good for that, you might say, so it keeps you from doing it. But instead, the opposite should be true. I know that I have an eternal inheritance with Christ. And I know that the only reason I have that is because he stooped low to serve me. How can I not serve this person? How can I not sacrifice for this person? How can I not deny my own preferences and privileges for the sake of someone else, for the sake of the good of this church or this city? How could I not? 
humble myself. I'm fully secure. I'm fully confident in who I am in Christ so I can give up anything for the sake of serving someone else. I have everything in Jesus. Everything is yours in him. So you can give up anything to serve and love and sacrifice for others in the city, to live humbly, remember who you are. But then secondly, it's rooted in his mission. So notice the flow of it here. He says, you know, not only knowing that all things are are in his hands or given all things into his hands, but that he had come from God and was going back to God. So he knew that his hour had come, verse one, before the the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. He knew that his mission was almost complete. And it's in full view here. I've come from God, but very soon I will be going back to God. And so out of the overflow of who I am and out of the overflow of what I've come to do, he goes and he serves. And the same is true for us. Not only does our identity in Christ fuel our humility, but the mission that he has given us fuels our humility. So to live humbly, not only remember who you are, but remember what you are called to do. We are called to love this city. We are called to love one another. We are called to serve this city. We are called to serve one another and to sacrifice and to reach those who have never heard the gospel and who do not know the gospel, who have yet to believe the gospel with the gospel. We are called to make disciples. All of that requires humble hearts. All of that flows from a heart who accurately recognizes that we are nothing in comparison to God and yet we can serve anyone because he has lifted us up. And so we are willing to bring ourselves low to exalt others with the gospel, to lift others up with the gospel because that's the mission that he has given us. So the anchor that holds us to humility is the anchor of identity in Christ and the anchor of mission in Christ. Um, I wanted to read one more quote to you before we finish, and it's actually in your liturgy guide. So if you had a copy of that, I want you to get that out. Um, it's a final, final thought from, from C.S. Lewis on, on this idea of pride and its danger and, and humility. Um, Humility requires self-awareness. It requires self-honesty. It requires self-forgetfulness. And until we grow in those skills, the more pride will find a home in our hearts. Uh, Lewis, he, he sums this up pretty well. He says, In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God... As that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I'm afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. And like I said here, what I want for Trace Crossing is a culture of humility. 
We can work on doctrine. We can work on it. We're all going to grow and sharpen one another. God will forgive many tertiary doctrinal disagreements, right? Like there are things we believe. For instance, baptism. Should infants be baptized or should they not be baptized? Someone's right on that, right? Someone's right, someone's wrong. I think we're right. We don't baptize infants. We could be wrong, okay? It may be entirely appropriate. That's not going to keep us from heaven. Prideful hearts will. If the culture of this church is one where we're doing all of the things that on paper we're supposed to do, and yet it's coming from a motivation of puffing ourselves up so we can be proud of our church over and against other faith families in our city, it will do us no good and it will lead us on a path to destruction. So Lewis continues, they theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God. They sound really humble. And then he says, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. That is, they pay a penny worth of imaginary humility to him and get out of it a pound's worth of pride towards their fellow men. I suppose it was of those people Christ was thinking when he said that some would preach about him and cast out devils in his name, only to be told at the end of the world that he had never known them. And any of us may at any moment be in this death trap. Do you feel that? Again, it requires self-awareness, self-honesty, self-forgetfulness. Can you say this with Lewis? At any moment, we may ourselves be in this death trap. And then Lewis says, luckily we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. So, in calling myself, in calling you to living out this gospel principle of humility, we have to look to Jesus. There isn't a four-step plan. We have to look to Jesus in his humility. So I pray that you would meditate on him this week that you would meditate on the humility of Jesus and see that who you are in him and the mission he has given us is what propels us to make ourselves low, low for the sake of building others up. Let's, let's pray. Father, we are by nature a prideful people. By, by nature, Father, we oppose you And we set ourselves up not only against, but above other people in our lives. Father, this plays out in so many ways. We confess that we have been far too defensive, that we have cared way too much about the approval of others. We have cared so much about our own esteem. We have cared so much about our own reputations. We have become self-obsessed. And Father, we know that all of this flows from our hearts and in that sense, sin is the same. But this one in particular seems to be at the epicenter of all other sins. And we're, we're afraid in the sense that our pride can even show up in good things. 
And so I pray that we would each check our motivations. Why are we studying scripture? To puff ourselves up with knowledge that others don't have? Why are we pursuing health in life groups? So that we can boast in having the most transparent life group in in the church? Father, why are we trying to reach our city with the gospel? So we can boast in numbers? No. Father, we don't want any of that to be true of us. I pray that you would infect us with your humility and that we would see a culture of humility develop here at Trace Crossing and that it would flow out from us into our city as well. Father, we look to Jesus and we are blown away at his humility. We are blown away at his condescension, that he came down to us, that he took on a human body and then that body was broken for our sake, that he took on our sin, that he came, though he deserved to be served, not to be served, but to serve others by becoming a ransom to serve us. Father, give us a healthy self-awareness where we look at ourselves and accurately evaluate ourselves in light of who you are. That means we will see ourselves as sinners deserving your wrath. Help us to accurately evaluate ourselves in light of others and to not see ourselves as any better than anyone else. Father, help us to be honest with ourselves. That's where repentance begins. That's where humility comes in. And then, Father, ultimately, help us to forget ourselves because we're so caught up in your glory. Help us to forget ourselves because we're so focused on others. We're so focused on reaching them with the gospel and loving them with the love that we have been loved in Christ. So, Father, we can't do any of this on our own. We are utterly dependent on your grace. I pray that you would give it to us and change us for the sake of your glory, for the sake of this city. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to invite you to stand now. We're going to respond through song before we move forward.